0: If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to uh, the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 15, verses 33 through 41. 33 through 41 uh, of Mark, chapter 15. Um, You know, we really aren't in darkness, and it's really hard to put ourselves in darkness. Um, Even when you close your eyes, I was thinking about this, uh, you know, even as you close your eyes, your eyelids are not thick enough to block out all of the light that gets through it. Um, uh, The last couple of weeks, um, uh, Alexander's been getting scared at night. And, of course, one of the things that uh, helps children whenever they're afraid is night lights. Um, uh, And it's just a reminder to us just how pervasive light is. Uh, Darkness will not overcome the light. And, indeed, light always overcomes Darkness. You know, uh, it used to be that, um, as a punishment, as a form of punishment, that we that uh, prisons used to lock men in solitary confinement in dark rooms, um, and and they did that to show the severity of their crimes and of the things they did. Now that form of punishment is actually illegal, uh, and you can universally ask this question uh, anywhere you go that. That to be in darkness and to be in solitary confinement in darkness is the worst kind of punishment that you can go to be in. Uh, Today I want to just think about that question, what happens when the light stops? What happens when the light decides to stop overcoming the darkness? What would it be like for us to live in that kind of world? Because we see the darkness overcoming the light today in this passage. Um, We're going to look at this passage. We're going to read this passage together. I want you to feel the heaviness of what Christ was going through for our sakes today. So this is, again, Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 41. Hear God's good and kind word to you today. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemai sabachthani. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. And there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Josie and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And let's pray and ask for the Lord's help in understanding this word. Pray with me. Our Father, we thank you for giving us this word today. And as we see the darkness descending over Christ, we pray that the light of Christ would come over and overshadow our hearts. Father, we thank you for your glory and for your mercy displayed in your Son for us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So today I want to see this passage in three ways. First of all, we see day darkness, day darkness, in verses 33 and 36. Uh, We're given this time stamp here, uh, the sixth hour to uh, the ninth hour, and that's from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m., the brightest part of the day. And this darkness descends over Jesus. He's on the cross. We were told that they began to nail him to the cross and put him on the cross at around 9 a.m. And at some point from 9 to 12, he was nailed to the cross, put on the cross, and then put in the place on Golgotha where he was crucified. So from 12 to 6, darkness descends. Um, There are a lot of commentators and theologians that have tried to explain this darkness uh, as some kind of natural phenomenon, something that happened that just took place. Uh, And if you need to know this, if you want to know this, um, the Bible isn't the only place that marks this darkness. Uh, There is the historian Josephus who actually marks that during this day there was some kind of darkness that descended that could not Be explained. And nevertheless, some theologians, modern theologians, and commentators try to explain it away and say, well, it must have been some kind of eclipse. Uh, But we just went through this, and the eclipse really only lasts for a few seconds. This is something more. This is something that defies natural explanation and indeed needs a supernatural explanation because this is not natural darkness. This is supernatural darkness. Uh, That is symbolized in physical darkness. So what's happening here? Why is this darkness important? Well, it gets down to the very nature of the cross and what Jesus is doing. Uh, Jesus isn't just dying a physical death. Uh, One of the things that is so difficult for us to capture in our minds is the reality of the punishment that Jesus is going through. Uh, We can see the nails, we can see the blood, we can see the the crown of thorns, we can see the the whippings and all of those things, and we can kind of grasp what that was like. But the thing that you and I fail to grasp is what's happening here in this darkness. You see, what's happening here is God the Father is beginning to remove all of His goodness from His Son. You see... One way that people will oftentimes talk about what's happening here is that, that, that God is separating himself from his son. And so there is a separation. Now, there is a separation that's happening. But one of the things that I think is important for us to understand is that God the Father is not completely separating himself from his son here. What's happening is God the Father is removing all of his pleasure. All of his delight, all of his favor, and every ounce of goodness that he feels toward his Son, he is removing that and is replacing that goodness with his wrath. That's the darkness that is descending upon Jesus Christ. God the Father is here, present with the Son, But God the Father is pouring out His wrath on His beloved Son, removing His goodness and replacing that goodness with wrath. All over the Old Testament, when you go through and read, the darkness is equated with God's judgment. Amos talks about this, and Amos is one of the the major prophets that says, On the day of judgment that I will pour out my wrath upon Israel, and I will bring darkness over the land. But isn't that interesting that in the Old Testament, over and over, that the minor prophets or the prophets talked about darkness descending on Israel. But here, the darkness is descending not on Israel, but on Jesus. On that day, Amos says, I will pour out my wrath on Israel. But here, Jesus is the one receiving God's wrath. And how do we know that? We know that because of what he says Psalm 22, Jesus quotes the psalms. Just notice who Jesus is and what he's like. That at the moment of his greatest agony, what does he do? He quotes scripture. He quotes scripture and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's happening is Jesus is experiencing the wrath of God, not the wrath of God that He deserves, because He's perfect and sinless. He is the beloved Son of God, the only beloved Son of God, and yet He cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is experiencing the infinite wrath of God that you and I deserve. This is an amazing thing. Jesus has not opened His mouth up to this point. All of the gospel accounts, except except for John. um, John will interject some words that Jesus says here and there. But by and large, Jesus has been silent. Whenever his false accusers come and accuse him, Jesus stays silent. He doesn't say anything against them. Whenever he's beaten and bruised and bloodied, he doesn't say anything. All of the punishment that man dishes out to Jesus, Jesus is silent. But when it comes to taking the punishment of God... Jesus cries out in weakness. Where is God here? Here he is. You see God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit all together here, joined together at the cross. One of the things that you'll hear in modern Christian circles and in religious circles is that God must be a God of love. And one of the things that we don't like to talk about is the justice of God. Um, We don't like to think of God as a God of justice. And so you're told that you have to choose a God of justice or a God of love. One of the things that I try to make perfectly clear here at this church is that you don't have to choose. And indeed, God is a God of justice and a God of love. And where is the proof of that? It's here on the cross That because God is a God of justice, all sin must be punished. God is not a God of love who simply turns his face and doesn't look at the sins that we commit. Indeed, he looks at our sins and is offended by them. God is a God of justice and all sin is punished by God. And yet he is a God of love. Because God says, I don't want my children to face my wrath. And I will go and face it for him. God's justice demands a payment. But God's love accepts the substitute of Jesus Christ, his beloved son. Romans 6.23 reminds us the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. We see the day darkness descending over Jesus. And he is forsaken by his God. Secondly, we see destroyed death or death destroyed in 37 and 38. Um, there was a Puritan author uh, who, um, he, well, if you've never read a book by the Puritans, um, they're incredible books, they're wonderful books. But their titles are almost as long... The titles of the books are almost as long as the books themselves. Uh, And John Owen wrote this book uh, entitled The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. Um, And that was the shortened version of the longer title that was about 30 or 40 other words. And then he had a subtitle that was about a paragraph. Uh, But he wrote this book, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. And in that shortened title... You get a picture of what's happening here. Jesus, by his death, is killing death for his people. Jesus is dying, and in his death, he's killing death for his people. Notice how Jesus died. He died, and we're told he died, by crying out. Um, It's kind of hard to capture the word uh, from the original, it's almost like an onomatopoeia where it's a word that is it's written and it sounds like the word um, as it's said. And when he cries out, it isn't just a, ah, it's a, it's a loud, guttural death cry. One that almost cannot be uh, repeated unless you are going through that kind of suffering. Jesus is dying in agony. One of the interesting things about martyrs throughout history is that many times when martyrs face their death for their, uh, for their cause, they die bravely. Um, there are lots of examples of this throughout history. Uh, the one that popped in my mind um, most vividly was uh, um, the Buddhist monks who will, um, in order to protest – The uh, Chinese occupation of Tibet, they will go to a very public place and they'll light themselves on fire. Um, This is a a terrible way to die, but it's a way of them protesting the brutality of Chinese occupation of Tibet. Now, one of the, the things about that is as these monks are dying this brutal and terrible death, they're calm and peaceful. You don't just have to go to the Buddhist monks to see that kind of death where they're calm and peaceful. Christianity is replete and full of Christian martyrs that have faced death bravely, without tear, looking down their accusers and their persecutors, dying bravely for Christ. The thing that I want you to understand is that that is not how Jesus is dying. Jesus is dying in agony, Jesus is dying in weakness. He's dying in weakness because he's undergoing three types of separation. First of all, his soul is being separated from his body. His soul is being separated from his body. That is a kind of agony uh, that most of us will go through in physical death. But more important than that, there is a spiritual death that is happening. Where Jesus Christ is experiencing that removal of the favor of God... From his son. He is undergoing actual spiritual death, the death that was promised to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2. If they were to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God said, You will die. And in the Hebrew, if you remember, he says, You will die, die. Here, Jesus is die, die. He's facing the death that you and I deserve. So he sees that separation as well. But we're also told. In death destroyed, something else happened. Um, look in verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Uh, this is uh, the, the very elaborate and thick curtain that God instructed for his people to put in between the Holy of Holies, the most inner part of the temple, and the other part of the temple that separated God from from man this was an, an extremely thick and ornate um, uh, curtain that was interwoven with blue fabric blue or purple fabric uh, and and had cherubim on it uh, angels on it and there was only one time a year when anyone could go in and that was the high priest on the day of atonement would go in and make atonement for God's people uh, and I love the I love the the picture here they would they would tie a rope onto his onto his ankle just in case God was angry at him if he did something wrong and God lashed out and killed the priest, they wouldn't have to go in. They could just pull him back. Well, at this time, you know, 3 o'clock was the time when the high priest was to go and walk into the temple. He was to go in and make an offering for the people and they would draw the curtain back just so much that the people surrounding that area of the temple could see that blue and ornate curtain. They would draw it back and they would see him walk in. But here at the death of Jesus, they drew the curtain back so that the people could see the curtain that separated them from God and the curtain was lying on the floor, torn ...from top to bottom. That that tearing from top to bottom was important. I think it was Clyde that pointed that out to me. I'd never thought about it before. This was a 20-foot-high curtain. so that And it was about two inches thick. This wasn't the sort of thing that a man could do. This was a curtain that was torn from top to bottom... ...indicating that from God to man... ...the way to God was opened. That in the death of Christ... Now men could go to God. There was the separation from God was removed. The way to God is open. Genesis chapter 3. You remember what God put protecting the Garden of Eden from men? He said, look, I can't let men back into the, into the garden. Because if they do, they'll eat of the tree of life. They'll live forever under his condemnation. He says, I can't do it. What am I going to put? I'm going to put an angel with a flashing sword. So that people cannot go back through unless they go through the sword. And if you go through the sword, what happens? You die. Here, Jesus goes through the sword to open the way to the garden. So that we can live in peace with God forever and ever and ever. The way of peace is open for those that believe. And then finally here in 39 and 41, we see distant disciples. Distant disciples. Um, There are a variety of different disciples here at the cross. And Mark only gives a little bit of information. The other gospel writers provide a little bit more information about what's going on about the scene around the cross. But we're told that there is a centurion that is facing Jesus. He is looking at Jesus. And indeed the centurion was there to oversee the death of these criminals. He was like the coroner that makes the pronouncement of death. Uh, Centurions were well acquainted with death. They were well acquainted with what it was like for people to die because they killed people for a living. And so the centurion is an important figure here because he sees Jesus die. He sees Jesus die. He is a witness to the actual death of Jesus Christ. And what happens when he sees Jesus die? When he sees Jesus die in agony, crying out, he says, truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, that's important because we, up to this point, we have not seen the Son of God, except for one other place in the Gospel of Mark. We've been going through this book for years now, and this is the only other place that we've seen someone else confess that Jesus is the Son of God. Anybody know where the first time and the only other time is? It's Mark 1.1. 1, 1. Turn all the way back to Mark chapter 1 verse 1. This is the culmination, this is the climax of Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 1 verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark has been arguing that Jesus is the Son of God, the only true Son of God. And now, 15 chapters, it's 15 chapters later, <clears throat> on the uh, the voice of the centurion, he confesses when he sees the death of Christ on the cross that Jesus is the Son of God. That's an amazing thing. He is transformed when he sees Jesus facing his death. That indicates a few things for us. Um. It indicates for us that you will not be a true Christian until you see Jesus in the cross. The cross is central to Christianity. You will not understand your sin until you see Jesus in the cross. And you will not give him this title, the true son of God, as the centurion did, until you face Jesus in the cross. Have you faced Jesus in the cross? He tells these Roman Christians something really amazing. Um, Mark was writing to Romans who were undergoing persecution, who were being killed for their faith. And he says, this Roman centurion became a Christian because he saw Jesus die. And guess what? By your persecution and by your suffering, others will come to Christ as well. That's a good reminder to them. It's a good reminder to us. It's a reminder to us that your suffering... And the way that people see you suffering is the thing that will bring them to Christ. It's a good reminder to us that we will go through suffering and trials and tribulations in this world. And those things are meant to draw you closer to Christ and to bring others to Christ as well. We also hear in verses 40 and 41, and I'm going to deal more with this next week. We see these women that are there looking on at a distance. They're witnessing the death of Christ. Um, Women were treated as second-class citizens in this day. They could not give a testimony in a court of law. Uh, They were not considered reliable witnesses. But here Christianity says that these women were reliable witnesses to the death of Christ. And you see Christianity everywhere it goes. It elevates the status of people that otherwise previously were looked down upon. And here are these three women. We know that there were other women that were there as well. But at least these three women... Named women were there to see the death of Jesus Christ. And they stood at a distance, but at least they saw it. They had been with Jesus. They had been ministering to Jesus. And I just want to make a note about this. Um, Verse 41, when he was in Galilee, they followed him and they ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Jesus needed to be ministered to. Jesus, the son of God. Second person of the Trinity needed people to minister to him. Um, Just a a reminder to you, ministers of the gospel need to be ministered to as well. We need help. Our families need help. Just encourage you to check on your pastor, to pray for your pastor, to pray for your pastor's family as well. If Jesus needed it, guess what? I'm going to need it. But again, we'll deal with some of these things more next week. I just want you to see that they stood at a distance, but they saw it. And next week, we're going to see that they got up close and personal with Jesus. Your proximity to Jesus matters. Where are you in relationship to Jesus? Where are you? These women saw the cross, and the cross of Jesus was enough. The centurion saw the cross And the cross was enough. Some of us say, okay, the cross of Jesus is fine, but it's not enough. I need Jesus plus something else. I need Jesus. I need the cross plus a comfortable life. I need Jesus plus obedient children. I need Jesus plus respect in the community. And if that is you, if you're saying you need Jesus and the cross plus anything else, then you don't have faith in Christ. You have faith in those other things. But maybe you're not saying that. Maybe you say, you know, Jesus and in his, in his death was uh, it was good, but it wasn't quite enough. And what God really wants from me is my obedience. And I need to do something to perfect the death of Jesus Christ. If you're saying that it's Jesus and the cross plus my obedience, then you're not, you don't have faith in Christ, you have faith in yourself. And this passage is the reminder to us that it's the cross plus nothing else gives us salvation from It's enough. What are you putting your hope in this morning? What are you putting your hope in? If it's anything other than Jesus, then the wrath of God is still for you. If your hope is in Jesus Christ, then it's been paid. There is no more wrath. Let's pray.